South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And it is a beautiful South Texas morning out there. A little chilly at my house this morning. 48 when I walked outside. But I tell you, it's going to be the 80 degree morning. So it'll be coming along pretty soon. Just gorgeous mornings. Nice warm afternoons. And uh, just, you know, that light jacket in the morning to get you started. If you've got any heavy work to do, you've got two, three hours of just really pleasant weather to get that done. Tell you what, love this time of year. Just we need rain in the hill country. Now, San Antonio, we got a good rain here a couple of days ago. But, uh, boy, the hill country could use some more. It's getting dry. It's getting dangerously dry up there when it comes to fire danger and all. But tell you what, it's still good for gardening. And that's what we're here to talk about. We're going to start out talking with A.J. and Joyce and Eric. But uh, we'll have lots of opportunity over the next three hours to talk to you as well. So uh, let's just get started, Don. Let's go ahead and see what A.J.'s up to this morning, see if there are any developing situations. Good morning, A.J. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah there, there's one or two of Bobby. There's one or two of <laughs> Well, then it's it's a normal day if, uh, if your life is anything like mine. <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, on, on coleus. Do they have to be in shade all day long, or or what's the what's the uh, what do I have to pl- where do I plant them to get the best looking plants? Well, ninety percent of them need to be in the shade. Um, the morning sun is okay, but hot afternoon is too uh, hot. Afternoon sun is too much for most coleus. Now there are a handful of varieties. Most of them kind of coppery colored. There's especially one uh, called Alabama that will tolerate the hot sun. So. Like everything else in the plant world, there are very few absolutes. But most of the real rainbow colors, and there's some beautiful colors in them out there now, some different leaf shapes, and uh, there's even a giant leaf one called Kong Acolius. Uh, bright shade or morning sun is is the place to go uh, if you're going to get hot afternoon sun. Just look for those coppery varieties like Alabama, and those guys will do fine in, in full sun as well. Now, I've got... Uh, I've got- you know, shade, but in the early morning, say till about ten o'clock, they get uh, the the morning sun. Perfect place for coleus. Say again. That's the perfect place for coleus. Oh, they can take that ten o'clock sun. Oh right. yeah, no no problem at all. And if you stick some impatiens or begonias in there along with them, or maybe some caladiums, uh, you can have a. Uh, you can have a bed that will make everyone in the family happy and reduce the number of situations that occur in the future. Yeah, but Bobby, you you get ready to make AJ dig do a lot of digging in the flower beds over here. That that that's oh, well. As as people tell us, you really ought to get down on your knees every now and then. And uh, gardening is one of the other good things to do while you're there. I've got one more question for you. Yes, sir. Here in Victoria, uh, asked me what kind of lime tree is suited for Victoria, and I said I didn't know. And I gave him your number, and since I called you this morning, I'm going to ask you. Well, it's easier to get through to me on the radio. I mean, 
This phone at the nursery is just insane how it rings. So you did the right thing. And the answer is that lime trees are the least cold hardy. So as long as that temperature stays above freezing, you can grow either type of lime. And there are basically two types. One is what we call oh, a Mexican lime or a key lime. Those are one and the same. There's a smooth variety and a variety with thorns. But they're your little round limes that uh, make great uh, uh, margaritas or, you know, less adult beverages like limeade. They're just so juicy and good. And uh, those limes can bloom any time, and they can produce all year long. You can pick fruit from them almost every day of the year. Then you have your bigger limes that they call Persian limes, and they're going to be like grapefruit and lemons and things like that. They're going to bloom in the early spring and then produce their fruit late summer and fall. So either one of those lime varieties will do very well in the Victoria area. So uh, uh, just, you know, get uh, get your plants when you can find them because citrus is a little hard to come by right now. But uh, get them in the ground and start enjoying some wonderful juice. Just be prepared to cover them up if, we, uh, if we're going to have severe weather. And that's not going to happen nearly as often to you as it does to us in the hill country. So um, I think you're fine. The other option, if you're really worried about not being home when the cold weather comes, you can always plant them in a big container, a big molasses tub or something like that, and then uh, drag them into the greenhouse or into the garage or something when there's a potential for colder weather. Okay, so the either the Mexican or the Persian, either one is good, but that Mexican sound like it, it would probably, it bears longer during the year. Oh, yeah, it bears all year long. The Persian, if you compared pounds of fruit, it probably would come out about the same because the Persian is going to produce a whole lot of fruit at one time. Uh, the key lime is going to, uh, the Mexican lime is going to produce a little bit of fruit pretty steadily throughout the year. Okay, Bobby, I do thank you. Well, it is always a pleasure, AJ. I hope your hope your Sunday gets uh, even better. So uh, we'll we'll talk again soon. And now we'll move on to Joyce. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. Wonderful spring roller coaster season of warm, cool wind. Yeah, that's that's the best way to describe it. And boy, that rain was wonderful Friday, you know, in town. And uh, I'm just ready for a good one in the hill country. But like my old buddy Alton Grimm used to say, every day we're one day closer to that next good rain. I got mostly rumblings, but that was fun to listen to also. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And and unless you're one of the garden girls named Maya who gets a little nervous when it thunders, but, you know, it's, uh, it's all good. Well, at least she has uh, Hannah to comfort her now. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Well, um, I have, uh, uh, two questions. I like to experiment. Most folks do, but I also have a lazy streak that says, "Why try something that other folks have already tried?" <laughs> <laughs> Very good way to look at it. Well, my question is about a water lily. I had mm-hmm. a, a little—I call it a little water feature—but all it is is a plastic tub that's about twenty inches across, that kind of thing. And I, I used to have a water lily in there, and it would poke mm-hmm. up now and then, but I put some water hyacinth in there, and they kind of took over. I thought I'd lost all of it, but when I was cleaning the thing up, I found a piece of water lily down there that uh-huh. was trying to grow. So my, oh, very good. My question is this. Well, I'm going to take out most of the, or move over some of the water hyacinth and try to start it over. And I guess two things. Uh, I want. Did you say that San Antonio water 
has chlorine or chloramine. Can, can I let it just stand and get rid of chlorine, or does it have the chloramine? You're gonna have to call. Um, you're gonna have to call saws and tell them where you are, because different treatment plants use different products, oh. and uh, there may be, you know, there may be parts of San Antonio with chloramine. There may be parts with chlorine, and one of these days they're gonna get it all converted over to UV, and we won't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. They'll probably stick chlorine in there anyway, but um, uh, the chlorine, of course, will dissipate just from standing. The chloramine. I mean, you'll need to run by an aquarium shop or somewhere like that and pick up one of those little bottles of the drops. You just put a few drops in and it uh, neutralizes chloramine. And, you know, that's a little bit of that is really not going to affect lilies. Now, if you put fish in there, then uh, the chloramine can be a real problem. But um, uh, that's, you know, uh, again, that's up to you. A container that size, you probably don't have room for you know, fancy goldfish or certainly not for koi, but I believe in getting a few of those little ones, and uh, I don't know why scientific names just stick in my brain, but gambusia uh, is the little fish. They call them mosquito fish, and uh, we used to call them guppies growing up, and uh, uh, those will keep you from ever having mosquito larvae in there, and I think that's a very good idea. So I think it's a good idea to get rid of chlorine or the chloramine just to protect them. But um, if you if you decide to acquire more water lilies, keep in mind that there are dwarf varieties, and that's certainly what you will want to put in a little small feature like that. Uh, many of the water lilies, you know, they'll spread out and have pads uh, spread out across eight feet of water surface, but there are also some dwarf varieties that are absolutely beautiful. And, of course, remember to keep that little pool out in the sunniest area you can so that you can get flowers. Well, I thought this little thing in the past, and, yes, you're right about adding some of the little guppy things, but I thought it got too hot for them, and I had put some goldfish in there, little little goldfish. Oh, that's fine, too. Yeah, that's fine, too. Goldfish are algae eaters, but they'll also take care of most of the mosquito larvae, but uh, they're big enough to see, and uh, in my world, that means that periodically a big heron will come in and try to eat them all and mess everything up in the process. So uh, that's one thing about the guppies. They blend in so well, I... I've, I've never seen a heron come to a pond, you know, just to eat those little guys. Well, my, my problem was uh, raccoons. They got the gold. Uh, that's true. Uh, the question I really had about it is, I'd like to, can I use a little bit of has to grow in the water? At the moment, there are no fish in there, so I don't sure. think it would hurt them. Could I use a tiny bit to try to give it a little bit of boost or something? I don't have any of those agro tablets. Right, the agroform tablets. What, you know, usually you will keep your water lily in a pot and you will not use potting soil. You'll use just garden dirt to plant it in because you really don't want compost. You especially don't want peat moss in there. And in honesty, the best thing you could do is to make up your has to grow in a bucket, lift that plant out and, you know, set it down in the bucket for a little while pick it up and let it drain and then put it back in because long term you know you can you can build up some uh some things that uh you would would keep the water from being as fresh and nice as you wanted so uh uh in that situation i'm i'm more into lift that little pot out dunk it down in a wash tub with has grow solution in it let it sit for you know an hour and then take it out and let it drain and then put it back into your regular feature and then you can use the has grow that you mixed up in the tub uh in your watering can to put on all those other fine plants you grow 
Now, that is exactly the reason I called. I never had thought of that aspect of it. I, I only tell you about <laughs> yeah. I only tell you about mistakes that I've made in the past. So if I can if I can save you reinventing the wheel, it is uh, what I'm here for. Would you use the two tablespoons per gallon or one tablespoon per gallon? Oh, I'd use two tablespoons per gallon, and I okay. do it infrequently, maybe once a month if you can get around to it. Yeah. Okay, that'll be fine. Well, the last question is a quickie. Uh, Acuba or Cuba, uh, the green one. Mm-hmm. Is it does it lend itself to rooted cuttings from the tips or not? Oh, it does. It does. But let the let the wood mature. You don't want to get real soft new spring growth. You want to let it. Uh, um, of course, fall is the very best time to root those. But uh, uh, at this point, probably hold off until June or so. And uh, yes, it does lend itself to rooting very very well. Oh, good. Well, I'm going to try that because I have one that has some sticking out limbs, and I thought, well, I'd like some more of that. If it's oh, I know when I when Roberta, your Roberta's our chief Akuba pruner here at the nursery, and whenever she prunes, they all go into a big bag that goes out to one of our growers. They root them, and I get a percentage back in the form of beautiful little plants. So uh, it works out real well. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Roberta because that brings up a question I thought of and didn't. I know that you mentioned that she has had or has Rangoon Creeper. Has it yes. come back out yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's out. And, uh, oh, gosh, I was up helping her with a couple of things the other day. I'd say it's probably 18 inches tall now. Okay, well, I guess mine died. I had one in a pot that I tried mm-hmm. to protect, but I haven't yeah. seen any growth coming out, so I guess I've lost it. I, I wouldn't give up on it till Mother's Day, but uh, hers is oh, in the I ground, would. but, of course, she lives up way up in the hill country, so uh got colder up there, and it started out just one little sprout here and then one little sprout there, and now the, the two, she has it growing up either side of an arbor, and uh, there must be ten shoots coming up on each side now, so it's coming back strong. And if you want to think a happy wish for her, today's her birthday. So uh, uh, she'll she'll be, I bet she's probably gardening as we speak. Oh, well, absolutely. Many more happy birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass that along to her. Well, give the girls a pat and Max, too. And thank you so much, Bob. You've been a great help to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank well, you. it's always a pleasure, Joyce. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Okay, Eric, hang on. Need to get a break done here, and I get to talk about Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly. And uh, once again, are you looking out at the beautiful day and dreading all the things you know you're not going to get around to? Well, then in that case, you might just want to give Sam a call sometime because, you know, he's not the guy that's going to do your, your heavy lifting, so to speak. He's not going to replant those uh, big shrubs that froze and things like that. But he is going to help you out if you need uh, compost tea, if you need uh, the application of... Oh, if you need to hang out trip trichogram a wasp or compost tea around or good fertilizer application or if you just have problems going on and you're not sure what kind of control you need he's got a call his business is called green grow organics and uh he sort of does consulting and you know helps out with the uh with the work that you need a bit of assistance with uh you can always uh go to his website at green grow and it's spelled out g-r-o-w green grow organics uh looks like it's something for you well give him a call find out what uh, the charges are and set up a consultation with him and you go from there and uh, you spend your gardening time doing what you want to do and Sam helps out Sam and his crews help out with the other things that uh, maybe you know you're just not going to get around to that's Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Next three callers are Eric, Jeff, and Dorothy, and Eric is up first. Good morning, Eric. Well, a glorious morning to you, Bob. <laughs> the blue sky is out here. I'm actually in Brenham because my wife is singing in the choir, but it hadn't started yet, so I could get a quick question into you. Well, very good. Beautiful moon early, beautiful morning now, and beautiful music later. So what can I help you with? Well, there was a really great article about you in, in Texas Gardener. And one of the and, and Jay was told me that he was gonna do that, which I thought was really cool. Oh, he's a great guy. Forty years for you. So that's that's very cool. But one of the things that caught my eye and I've been trying to track down for probably fifteen years is is you put your property in some kind of a land trust. I put my property under something which is called a conservation easement. Um, it's not a government program. The government recognizes it as a good thing. A conservation easement is an agreement between a land trust and a land owner, and um, it, it has many, 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 many benefits, uh, among them tremendous personal income tax savings. It has nothing to do with property tax. But basically, a conservation easement... Um, it's sort of like private zoning, and about every conservation easement is different. It is, uh, you know, applied uh, uh, to you know the the given situation. They can be very large, they can be very small, um, but there has to be a conservable value. But in the eyes of the IRS, uh, that can even be just uh, it creates a beautiful view. So, pretty liberal on the values. Um, the things that uh, that it includes will be a restriction on development generally the land trust that i had we normally don't allow more than uh than one house per 50 acres and uh by statute you have to outlaw strip mining um i guess that's really the only thing that has to be in there but you and your family decide what your property what you want your property look like forever and um, then you get together with the land trust and uh get it all set up the the big um the big personal tax savings comes uh, when you create a conservation easement. I could spend two hours talking about this, so you're very much getting the condensed version. But your land is double appraised. It's appraised at its current market value and appraised at what is called its encumbered value when you take away the development rights. And uh, I'll just give you the last piece of my ranch that I did was probably eight or ten years ago. And uh, the land appraised at uh, $15,000 an acre market value and $6,000 an acre, the encumbered value. The IRS looks at that and says, oh gosh, you gave up $9,000 an acre value. Uh, in my case, this was a 120-acre piece of land, so that comes out to a little bit over a million dollars. And I have 16 years that I am able to deduct that amount up to 50% of my uh, personal gross income. I can take a 50% deduction in my personal gross income uh, up until I use up that million dollars and therefore I'm only paying tax on uh, half of my income which uh, 
you know, for some folks, amounts to a lot of money. For some folks, not so much. But uh, I got into it because simply I never wanted to see my land turned into a golf course or a subdivision. Learned about the tax benefits later. The other question that I get from people all the time, well, does it, uh, does it protect you from eminent domain? The answer is yes and no. There is no absolute guarantee against eminent domain. But people like TxDOT and most of your utility companies, uh, they come to us. They come to our uh, land conservancy that I happen to be president of. And uh, they ask where our protected easements are because they say, well, we don't want the bad PR you know, of trying to condemn that land. So there, there's a lot to be said. Now, that, again, is is in a nutshell. It will cost you something. It will cost, uh, you know, the cost of the appraisal. It will cost the cost of the survey and the land trust. And you have your choice of, like, 42 different land trusts in Texas. They're going to want... Uh, an endowment, and it varies with, uh, you know, with the uh, land trust that you use, because part of their agreement is they will come on your property once a year forever, and be sure that all your wishes are being followed. And if a future owner is not abiding by your wishes, they will take them to court and force them to abide by your issues. And so we're required to have a certain amount of money in escrow, so to speak, for each easement that we hold. Uh, I, I'm part of the Civil Oak Conservancy, so we protect uh, some like 20,000 acres of land in and around uh, uh, the Cibolo area or Cibolo Creek area up there. So that's uh, that's Conservation Easement 101. Uh, if you go to our website, which is CibeloConservancy.org, uh, you'll see a lot more information up there. And if I can personally uh, encourage you in any direction, I'll be more than happy to. Size-wise, uh, Parks and Wildlife tells us that uh, 50 acres is about the... Uh, minimum size if you're going to protect the land for wildlife purposes but there are conservation easements as small as one acre to protect a historic building um, my business partner's property has a beautiful canyon beautiful spring on it uh, and in her case this was just one part of her ranch uh, but they they accepted a conservation easement on a 37 acre tract uh, let's say the owners of edge falls or something like that wanted to put a five acre area under conservation easement and they have it i hope they will someday but you know those are the kind of things that a good land trust will be more than happy to accept but if it's just vacant land generally you're going to need about 50 acres to qualify for a conservation easement does that give you a starting point well it does except for one thing nobody up here in washington county seems to know about land trusts. so how do i track down these 42 land trusts to talk to them you can just Google. Uh, you can do Google Texas Land Trust. Okay, and uh, you'll get quite a few of them. Yeah, I've talked to the Wildlife Association and, and some big acre people, and none of them seem to have a clue about it. We the we have twenty six point two acres that has been twenty six point two acres since the eighteen seventies, and mm-hmm. I would really like to leave it that way for future generations. Sure, and we've been restoring it back to the the native prairie. Yeah. And so <laughs> we're trying to keep it that way and that's that's why I'm so curious after that well, that article. And if you if you have trouble locating um I'll put you in touch with our director who's undergoing some cancer therapy right now, but he can still help you track down a, a good uh, land trust in that area and it'd be a great pleasure to do so. That would be super. I I appreciate that, Bob. Now, I'll tell you one thing. There are national uh, land trusts out there. Typically, they're a lot more expensive. I mean, uh, 
Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the big guys out there. Uh, but anyway, they, they don't even want to talk to you unless there's a lot of land and a lot of money involved. But uh, there are also some uh, smaller land trusts that that would just love to help you accomplish that. So uh, let us help you any way we possibly can. You're a little out of our area, but um, I'm sure we can find somebody good to help you out uh, You know, when, whenever you're ready to make that step. Be sure you have your family on board because, you know, this once you do it, it's there forever. So you want to do it right the first time so and so the uh, website that that i should go to is cibola cibolo c-i-b-o-l-o c-i-b-o-l-o cibolo conservancy.org conservancy.org that that is our land trust up in the bernie area but even in the bernie area um there there's several that uh you know that do easements around that part of the hill country so uh, uh i'm sure we can help you find a good one I appreciate it. You have a blessed day. Thank you, Bob. You do the, do the same, Eric. Thank you so much. All right. Well, let's get a break out of the way here, and then we will move along to Jeff and Dorothy. I get to talk to you a minute about Dr. Mark Williamson, and such a pleasure talking about a man that I have gotten to know well. You know, he was uh, Dr. Staffel's hand-picked man. If you knew Dr. Ed Staffel, he was the best of the best when it comes to oral surgery and dentistry. He pioneered so many things like sedation dentistry, and when he realized that uh, he needed some help and wanted somebody to pass his business on to, he chose Dr. Williamson because Dr. Williamson is in many ways like Dr. Staffel. He is qualified in so many different areas. A lot of dentists today have now joined big corporations who tell them, oh, if it's anything beyond just cleaning the teeth and a simple filling, just send it out to a specialist, not Dr. Mark Williamson. He's the general dentist and the specialist all rolled into one. That's going to save you money, save you a lot of time as well. Plus a kind, caring man that really wants to get to know you, know about your family, and just provide you the kind of personal service that we all are looking for in today's world. And You know, I met Dr. Williamson many years ago, and let me tell you what, you'll just find, never find a more kind and caring person. I know the support staff at his office for even longer. They're just great people, great dentists that can handle, you know, just about anything that would come along in the area of dentistry. Why don't you find out what I'm talking about? And by the way, you'll probably qualify for free teeth whitening for life. Give him a call, 341-2569. That's area code 210-341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. Jeff, source, uh, Jeff Dorothy, and Celso are my next three callers, and Jeff's up, for, up first. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Bob. Uh, nice morning, to sir. Nice to you again. My and pleasure. My wife had told me that uh, my citrus in San Antonio... Is it still uh, alive, or there's some green leaves growing? Uh, what will I do with that? Can I well, thing? yeah, with citrus, in most cases, the top of the trees is totally frozen. You have to be careful where the green is coming out. Uh, most citrus is grafted, and if it's grafted, anything that comes out below that graft point, which you can normally identify because there'll be a little crook in the stem right there, if anything comes out below that point, you need to cut it off immediately because that is just the rootstock. And you would like to try to force that rootstock to put its energy into the 
top of the plant, which is the lemon or lime or orange or whatever you have. But if it's coming out above the graft point, uh, just encourage it. Fertilize, let it grow, and uh, probably most everything above that point is dead and frozen, so you might as well cut it away at some point. But as long as the new growth is above the graft point, or if your tree is uh, not a grafted tree, any green growth is good green growth. And the good news is, because it already has the root system of a mature tree, it will regrow much more quickly than it did the first time around. It'll be up probably up to bearing fruit again next year. So uh, as long as that growth is above the graft, just cut off the dead stuff up above, fertilize, water, and be thankful. What uh, kind of uh, fertilizer do I need to use at this time? You know, if it's in the ground, if you want to use just the same granular organic fertilizer you put on your grass or your flowers, uh, that works very well. There are good brands out there like Medina and Nature's Creation and Maestro Grow. Any of those are just fine. If you want one that lasts a little or uh, that that works a little more quickly but doesn't last as long, have to has to be repeated more often. You can use a good liquid product like Medina's, what they call has to grow plant. Uh, uh, but the choice is yours. You know, both of them are both of them will be wonderful for your citrus. Ah, uh, yeah, I have both of those. Well, thank you very much, Bob. And as I said, uh, nice talking to you again. I, I well, live in California now, but my um, wife and uh, my uh, my property is to there in San Antonio. Well, you always call any time we can help. Uh, what part of California are you in? Uh, Ridge Crest, California. It's uh, I'm. Uh, near uh, death valley <laughs> you're down in you're down in the in the warm dry part but uh still interesting country out there so anyway it is good to talk to you jeff don't hesitate to call me anytime i can i can help and uh, it'll be my pleasure and let's see much. you're certainly welcome uh dorothy's up next good morning dorothy hi thank you for hi your there. wonderful show well, thank and you checking that civil old land it's a good thing. Like late last Sunday, the main points of the system I believe you term very important, regenerative agriculture, are covered in one hour and best of Gabe Brown on YouTube, but they can be outlined for your listeners in a few seconds right now, if you so allow. I'll give you about 30 seconds, and then we need to move on to calls. Got it. Regenerative agriculture dramatically increases soil moisture and profits. It drops fertilizer and pesticide use to near, near zero while rapidly creating topsoil. Not the same as organic fat farming nor rotational grazing. This system combines no-till, mixed species cover crops with heavy but very short-term livestock grazing on cropland range and even on gardens. Meanwhile, regenerative agriculture use restores water supplies and ecosystems and sequesters vast amounts of carbon. Best of Gabe Brown explains how. Well, and it's it's true, but you know, there's much more to it than that, and it has to be applied differently to different soil types. And uh, it does not create soil; it improves soil that's already there. Soil is mineral material, which two feet. I'm sorry. Uh, according to what I've seen, unheard, and saw, testified to, t- two feet of topsoil in ten years. Okay, well, you, you, but I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can't create mineral soil, uh, through any organic process, but you can certainly employ, improve it and add to the organic content. And I'm gonna hold you there and we're gonna move on and, uh, talk to Celso. Good morning, Celso. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well and it is a beautiful morning out there. How can I help you today? 
calling from Pleasanton, Texas. Yes, sir. I'm a, I'm a strawberry grower over here. Oh, good. And throughout the, throughout the years, I've listened to your show, and uh, I appreciate the information you give us. And I used uh, orange oil vinegar for weed control. I uh-huh. used Dawn soap for uh, insect control, and I used <laughs> Medina soap and a few other products. And the reason I'm calling you is because the information you've given us helped me. At the Poaching Strawberry Festival two weeks ago, there was 140 entries, and we won grand champion. Well, congratulations! That is an accomplishment. That's that's phenomenal because you're you're up against some pretty darn good uh, growers down there, and uh, you know I, I hope you frame that blue ribbon and hang it on the wall because that's something uh, you can be proud of and your family can be proud of. And uh, hope Stuart Frankie's listening this morning. He's the owner of Medina. <laughs> He'll be proud of you, and uh, I'm so glad. Uh, so glad to hear that. That's absolutely fantastic. And uh, we we only grow seventeen thousand plants, and like you said, <laughs> only seventeen thousand. Yes, sir. Some of these guys grow a hundred thousand plants, Bob. Yeah. We went, oh, I know. We went, against, we went up against all these guys, and our case was bought by a lot of uh, uh, buyers. But one of the biggest buyers was HEB, and we uh, uh, we ended up getting nine thousand dollars for a Oh, man. I am so happy for you, and I'm so happy for everybody listening out there. For all those people that say organics is good for home gardeners, but it won't feed the world, that's absolutely wrong. You're living proof that you can feed the world doing it correctly. So uh, you're my hero today. That's fantastic. You you are our hero because you help us a lot, and I appreciate the information you give us, and I listen to you. And I go and apply it out in the fields day in and day out, and it paid off. Well, I, I just, like I say, that's absolutely phenomenal. Growing that kind of plants, that always reminds me uh, uh, a job I had from with one of my mentors. We'd gotten in a huge shipment of plants, and one of the other employees said, Alton, how are we ever going to plant all these things? And he said, one at a time. <laughs> so whether you're growing 17,000 or 100,000, if you do it right, you do it one at a time. And uh, uh, send me a picture of you and your blue ribbon sometime or your certificate. Uh, that's just phenomenal. And I'll send you the information. We're on YouTube, and uh, I'll send you that information so you can download how we, the process we take to, from plowing the fields and getting the fields ready, and and uh, we're on YouTube. So I just wanted to share that with you. Well, I sure appreciate that, and uh, once again, my hat's off to you, guy. You're doing it exactly right, and I'll look forward to hearing about continuing successes in the future. So you call me anytime you like. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. (laughs) Can you imagine 17,000 strawberries, strawberry plants? Oh, man, can you imagine the pies and everything else? Oh, makes me hungry just thinking about it. Uh, Let me get a break here, and then we'll move on with more phone calls. I get to talk to you about Fanex Nursery and Garden Center. And uh, they're totally honest. They'll tell you they're out of a lot of plant material, but they still have a lot of plant material, especially things like those uh, trees that qualify for the Green Shade Tree Rebate Program that CPS Energy has. Only a few days left because you have to get those trees and get your entry in uh, to them before 
before the end of April, and that's coming up about uh, five days from now. So you need to get yourself over to Phoenix, and uh, there's a long list of trees that qualify for the program. You plant them where they have the potential to shade your house, and CPS gives you a $50 credit per tree on your bill. That's sort of an oversimplification, but that's what it's all about, and Phoenix wants to help you with the trees. They've also got a great selection of bedding plants, quite a few perennials, and all those supplies you need, the organic fertilizers, the compost, the mulches, the soil amendments, you bet they've got them. Organic weed control, uh, plus a lot of good gift material to keep in mind with uh, Mother's Day coming up just right around the corner. Lots of reasons to go see Fanix. They're right where they've been for over 80 years on Home Green Street in southeast San Antonio. Check out their website at Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, let's just go straight back to the phone line. It's going to be Jim and Gabrielle and Mitch, and Jim is up first. Good morning, Jim. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. You need some help. Got two big Monterey oaks. We're about a year and a half old planted. Okay. And they're about uh, 15, 20 feet tall, probably about an inch around. We've, uh, we're losing them, looks like, and we, we've uh, tried, we, we started with the wasp, and that helped. Then we went into the spray, and, and now we're putting Estagrow and Super Thrive. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to be helping any at all. The trees are just not producing any buds or uh, any leaves. Well, you're you're looking at freeze damage, and unfortunately, we're finding that Monterey oaks are simply not as cold hardy as the live oaks. What I'm, you know, there, there's you're doing most of what you can do, and it's just going to be wait and see. Uh, you know, I look around. Uh, my business partner has two Monterey oaks on her property. One of them is absolutely fully leafed and looks like it never even got cold. The other is like yours; it's struggling. And these are bigger trees, four or five inches in diameter. Um, sometime when you're in front of your computer, go to Howard's website, uh, dirtdoctor.com, and look at what he calls a sick tree treatment. Um, all of those things will very definitely help uh, your Monterey oak. And I have a lot of faith that a lot of these trees are, are going to go ahead and come out. But, you know, it's it's very important to have the root flare exposed. I think it's good to put a little bit of, uh, you know, green sand, a little bit of lava sand, maybe some... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It uh yeah, but but look at the sick tree treatment uh and and those that's about all we can do other than other than give them a little bit of time because uh we just don't know how severe the cold damage was, but they're a good tree and I think they have a good chance of coming back out. Yeah, we were real pleased with them. They just absolutely were doing fabulous till all this yeah. stuff in. You know, they got up about uh, about a foot around and just uh, took off height, and that's what we was needing. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, now we got some few green leaves up in top, but they've been there yeah. for quite a while, not doing anything. Well, the tree is just trying to get its act together to come out a little bit more. And like I say, do do check the base of the tree to be sure the root flare is exposed. And uh, you might might take a look at the sick tree treatment, the rock powders and things he suggests, and uh, that's going to give your tree, you know, the the absolute best chance it has. It's it's kind of like heart surgery, you know. The uh, you had some damage, you got it fixed, and now it just takes time to heal. And that's the way, you know. I've got a couple of Monterey oaks. 
that are exactly like yours, and uh, uh, I'm I, that's what I'm doing with them, and just hoping for the best. Now, good rain would help a great deal as well, but in in lieu of that. Uh, something like your has to grow uh, just along with good water. Uh, that's that's going to give them the best shot they've got. Okay, I'll keep working at them. That's encouraging. And, <laughs> and you keep me posted on how they do, Jim. All right, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Gabrielle is up next. Good morning, Gabrielle. Drop time. Okay, so, let's. Okay, so good morning. Good morning, sir. Or good morning, ma'am. Good morning. How can I help um, today? So, Bob, after listening to you, my goodness, since probably since your first day on the air, I made my first call last spring when we moved out here to Bandera, and you gave me some suggestions. And now I'm calling with some compost questions as well as fly questions. So, okay. I guess the compost first. So what I'm looking for is to, to tell you what I'm doing and if you could tell me what's bad or good about it and offer any suggestions. The very first thing, I guess, is to tell you we want to use the compost for our pasture um, and uh-huh. to, to spread it. And it's horse compost mostly as well as some chicken compost. And we want to, we do want to encourage wildflowers, so we do want some broadleaf things out there. So we are really mm-hmm. concerned about the pickleram. Yes. We had a source. We thought the Lissy and Eckel out in Hondo, and they've been wonderful, but this past week they ran out of it. So I'm wondering, you're in our area. Where where do you go for Pickleram-free hay? I don't. Um, <laughs> excuse me. I uh, I have a friend up in uh, in Sisterdale who, uh, who doesn't use Pickleram. He occasionally uses some other things that... Uh, you know, I would rather not use, but you just, uh, uh, you know, he's not a big enough producer to really, to really supply a very wide area. And uh, I just, anytime I have any question, I will take a bit of the manure and do that test of soaking it in water and then putting some of the water out. Fortunately, I don't have to buy a lot of hay. I do rotational grazing and I try to keep my herd numbers down so that uh, I can, you know, largely let <laughs> can let my cows do the uh, do the application to the field. But I, I just would, you know, I would uh, talk to the different people around that produce hay, ask them what they use, and uh, I imagine you can find someone who doesn't use the Pickleram. There, there's some other products out there. I don't like any of the synthetics, uh, but the Pickleram and the products that contain it, like P Plus D and Grazon and things like that, those are the ones that it's most important to stay away from. Okay, I'm sorry. What were those again? Uh, the two that are most commonly contain Pickleram, one of them is called P Plus D. And the other is called Grazon, G-R-A-Z-O-N. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, then, it seems that what we've been getting is truly Pickleram-free because I can see it's got clover and stuff in it, so Mm -hmm. I wouldn't imagine it. It could no. do that if it Yeah, Pickleram kills everything except grass. So if you've got clover in it, then uh, you're definitely Pickleram-free. Okay. All right. Um, so I guess we'll, and if anyone asks again, Lissy and Echo out in Hondo has, so far, has had that for us. So that may be a good source for other people. 
Very good. And so what we've been doing then is we're taking uh, the, it's mostly horse manure, and we're taking that. We've got a six-bin system, and just basically it takes about five days to fill a bin, and we're mm-hmm. putting mostly the green horse manure in there, and then every so every day after we empty it in there and pick it up, we put in a shovel full or two of the brown litter from the bottom of the chicken coop, mm-hmm. which the brown litter's, litter's mostly leaves and such. Right. And, um, and so with that six-bin system, they filled, and they have to be rotated every 30 days, and we're spreading sure, it out. Sure, sure. Gabrielle, let me, let me get Don to put you back on. Let me get Don to put you back on hold. We'll talk a little bit more in just a minute. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. We're going to talk a little more with uh, Gabrielle, and then we're going to talk to Emma and Brian. But uh, let's go back and talk about your pasture. So far, it sounds like you're doing everything right, Gabrielle. Okay. That sounds good. And then um, and then the rabbit, we've got a rabbit, and we had his compost his manure in there too but we feed him mm-hmm. the you know just the little things of timothy hay I, I imagine there's no controlling what's in that but do you think that small amount of it if no if that no you're good you're going to be in it that's be no you're gonna you're gonna be fine okay. i don't think anybody going to the effort of, of growing timothy is uh not going to be using that and most rabbit chows also have a good deal of alfalfa and there's certainly no picloram and alfalfa products so uh uh, that's that's a good thing to be adding as well. One one precaution I would tell you about horse manure, uh, other than of course the herbicide potential, you have to remember, and you know this if you've ever had a horse or a cow, things. Let's just say they grow through a horse much faster than they go through a cow, and a cattle manure will never have weed seeds in it because it spends so much time being digested inside the cow that by the time it becomes manure. Uh, it's pretty much free of any any weed seed pollution. A horse, on the other hand, uh, you sometimes uh, you may wind up with a lot of weed seed in horse manure that has not been broken down. So I think you're wise to compost it for you know a minimum of several days so that uh, you will get any any potential seeds germinating within the compost where they're probably going to die. Uh, so that that's just one other thing to keep in mind about horse manure as opposed to cow manure or rabbit manure or poultry litter is uh, that manure is never going to have weed seed in it but sometimes your horse manure can be full of weed seed and uh, that may be it may not be a problem in your pasture or it might be so it's just one more thing to remember okay thank you and so i guess that answers that other question uh the 30 days if we let them sit and then spread it every 30 days it looks like it's still pretty intact as horse manure, but it smell, doesn't smell like horse manure, so I felt like it was probably composted enough. <laughs> I think it's composted just fine, and uh, uh, after 30 days you have no danger, even with your poultry litter, uh, no danger of burning. So uh, 30 days is a, is a good target, and... Uh, um, I, you know, I'm envious of you if you're able to acquire that much manure that you can actually use it on your fields. Uh, I'm lucky to make enough compost to get my vegetable garden done, but I have a pretty big vegetable garden. So uh, you're doing it all right, and I think you'll just see the results in uh, increasing production year after year after year, whether it's growing grass or whether it's uh, growing any other crop that you uh, choose to put in there. So no, I think you're, I think you're on the right track and doing it just right. 
Okay, great. And then real quick then, flies, um, we're learning about those. Uh, and again, if I can tell you what we're doing and tell me what's good, bad, or suggestions that you have. Um, obviously, we're putting out the fly bags and catching them and kind of changing mm-hmm. those every month. And then every month we're putting out the parasitic wasps in there. Okay. And, picking up the manure all the time, and then just organic fly spray on the horses. Anything else that, I mean, they're still everywhere. <laughs> Is there anything else that we should be doing? Well, you're, you're doing pretty well. Keep in mind that not all flies are bad. I mean, all flies tend to be disgusting just because we associate, um, anytime you see a fly, uh, we associate that with being the garbage collector, the flies that, that tend to collect around garbage. But keep in mind that there are a lot of flies out there that are parasitic flies that actually control some other problems. So I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's, practical or reasonable to try to create a totally fly-free environment. But your fly parasites are, you know, a a real good starting point uh, and uh, on your horses. uh, I even use a little bit of spinosad. Now, I don't spray spinosad widely because I don't want to kill the good flies, but it's it's what they call an off-label use. But that's what I will, uh, and I don't have horses, I just have cattle. But occasionally when they get flies, uh, you know, I just mix it up and just, you know, spray not around their face. But uh, spinosad is one of the greatest fly killers out there. So be judicious in where you use it, but it's going to be one of your safest products that really targets flies directly. And um, as far as the disgusting ones, uh, yeah, your fly traps work. There are also the old-fashioned fly paper that, you know, our grandparents used. Uh, there are still sources of that and the sticky traps and things like that. If you ever just, you know, get a, a bad infestation of them, those can sure knock the numbers down. But uh, don't don't aim for a totally fly-free environment because there's some good flies you want to have around, too. Okay. Well, I appreciate your help. Thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure, and you keep up the good work. <laughs> it sounds like you're doing great to me. I appreciate the call, too. Thank you. All right, uh, Emma's going to be up next. Uh, good morning, Emma. Well, good morning. This is Emily from Almondorf. How are you? I'm doing very well, Emily. It's an absolutely gorgeous morning out there. I hope you're out enjoying it. Oh, we are. We're, we are in the midst of putting up our hundred our 96 by 20 foot greenhouse today so very good (laughs) not much wind out there and that's that's what you will want to avoid when you're building greenhouses so uh hopefully it'll stay down till you get the roof done yes yes so uh well thank you for taking my call bob my grandma just raves about you um she's 93 years old and she and my mom and my sisters are getting ready to revive the family farm and we're going to be planting hemp and so specifically for cbd flower handcrafted organic small bags Mm -hmm. all that good stuff so my question is where can i get some organic dirt that's ready to use, ready to use, like I need to buy it tomorrow. Well, I, you know, you, you're you probably not going to find certified organic dirt. I, I just, I'm not sure that, uh, 
that such a thing really exists. Um, but you, if you want to get a a good, uh, and I would I would call it garden soil, is probably what you're looking for. The best I have found when you need it in quantity uh, is from a company called Stone and Soil Depot. And they've got a bunch of locations around. I'm not sure which would be closest to you, but if you're needing it, you know, by the cubic yard, uh, Google Stone and Soil Depot. They are, and they have a good garden soil. And so far as I know, everything that goes into their product, uh, and they use a lot of different compostable products. And uh, so far as I know, everything that goes in there is, you know, clean and good. Now, if you're needing a smaller quantity and want to buy it by the bag nature's creation makes a product they call garden soil which is uh just a really great product it's uh it doesn't contain any uh you know, certainly no biosolids. It doesn't contain any peat moss. Doesn't contain anything that you would not want in your hemp growing operation. But of course, you know, it takes a lot of bags of soil to fill a a, a raised bed. So, so bag wise, I'd be looking at Nature's Creations Garden Soil. Bulk wise, I'd probably be looking at uh, Stone and Soil Depot's Garden Soil. Okay. Well, we are definitely going to need it um, in a large quantity. I'm assuming I need. Um, well, so we're going to do 250 pots. They're about 3.5 gallons each. So I'm, I'm estimating that I need 4.3 cubic yards. Go ahead and get six yards. That's a standard small dump truck because that soil is going to, uh, it's going to shrink down a bit. I would, uh, sounds like you're, <laughs> sounds like you're on a tor- short time budget, but fill those pots, water them two or three times, and, uh, then you're probably going to have to go back and top dress them a little bit. You want to, you want to leave a little bit of a depression on top, but, you know, so you can water more efficiently, but, uh, creating or just figuring the volume um if your numbers tell you you need four yards by the time you get ready to put the plants in it's probably going to take six yards to fill all those pots so i just go ahead and get a small dump truck you're going to pay the same freight on uh, six yards as you will on four and believe me i think you'll use it okay and then do you have any recommended fertilizer for this particular crop i would do this call Stuart frankie over at medina um, I think that probably their Hester Grow plant is going to be uh, what you will want to use on an ongoing basis. If you want to blend in any of his organic growing green into your soil before you fill the pots, that would be a good thing. But as your crop uh, grows, my choice would be his Hester Grow plant. But I know he's worked with a number of hemp growers. Heck of a nice guy. So call Medina Agriculture in Hondo. Ask to speak with Stuart. And uh, he can also arrange to sell you this product uh like in a in a big carboy or at the very least in a 55-gallon drum so you'll pay much less money for it than you would buying it in one-gallon containers. You also get it in five-gallon containers, and uh, he can help you in a lot of different ways. But I suspect this has-to-grow plant is going to be uh, is going to be a very good product for you to use. You might want to even consider alternating it with this new fl- fish blend fertilizer. That's what I'm doing. I grow mainly orchids for a hobby, and I've gotten the best growth, best results I've ever seen alternating has-to-grow plant with uh, with the fish blend, and I think you do the same. You have to be a little careful and do test your hemp um, regularly because, of course, you know, with the... Uh 
with the laws the way they are right now, you have to be very careful that you stay below, you know, the right percentages of THC. And I know a few growers found that when they went fully organic, uh, the plants grew so well that their THC was kind of, kind of pushing the uh, minimum or the uh, legal maximum. So, uh, <laughs> that's the only thing I know that could go wrong, wrong with growing organic hemp is, is it could be a little too good for what you want to do. Um, if you ever want a paid consultant, I know Howard Garrett has actually consulted on several hemp growing operations up in the Dallas area, but a good starting point that won't cost you a penny would be to talk to Stuart over at uh, Medina Agriculture and uh, get his guidance uh, for the, from the, you know, what he's learned with the people that he's worked with. Wonderful, Bob. Thank you so much. Well, you oh, keep up the I good thing. Go ahead. Oh, really quick. My grandma, who's 93 years old and has listened to the show every week, she wants to know how do I get a, uh, a visit with you? Well, you pretty much just come by the nursery. Tuesdays and Thursdays are my days to work at my ranch. I'll tell you right now, the nursery business is absolutely crazy. So much as I would love to take time with lots of nice people, when it slows down a little bit in the summer, and I may sneak off with my fly rod for for a brief period there, but uh, I don't do a lot of traveling other than to gift markets, but uh, love to see you here any time and uh you know I, again i just appreciate the good work you do uh keep in mind you know um that they're i don't I, you know people like dr kirby and i talk about uh, cbd and things all the time and uh you of course know about wanting certain extracts certain components of it but uh, you produce a quality product and uh, the world will literally be the path to your doorstep to make use of it so and it sounds to me like she's 93 years young not 93 years old so uh, give her my very best oh she puts us to shame thank you so much bob it's my pleasure emily thank you for the call this morning you have a wonderful sunday thank you thank you all right well let's uh get a break out of the way here and then we will talk to brian and move right on down the list i get to talk to you about the cedar eater of texas and again people that i know and respect because they do such a good job every time they work i was i was driving by some property uh just yesterday thinking man do these people need to get the cedar in here and it was just typical hill country property with some beautiful oaks totally choked with ash juniper you know, the land will be so much better. The good trees that you want to save would do so much better if you just got rid of the cedar. And I was thinking to myself, man, a few guys with a chainsaw, it would take them forever to do that. Cedar eater could probably do it in one day. And, of course, uh, if you got dense growth up there with trees you want to save, uh, they'll just send in a hand clearing crew that cuts the cedar that's up near your oaks and things, drags it out in the open, and then the big machine turns it into a mulch. It just is so efficient. It's amazing. It's light. I tell you, if you've ever seen them work, you'll be wearing ear protection. But they can do a few acres or many, many acres in a single day, just depending on how rough the land is. Maybe you're down in South Texas and you're not dealing with cedar, but you want those cinderas cleared. They can clear miles of cindera in a single day, whether it's hot or cold or anything in between. They also have bigger machines that will, do, that will take care of trees that may have died of drought or oak wilt with no danger of spreading the disease. Fighting mesquite, they've got a mesquite machine called the 
grubber that actually rips the mesquite out of the ground, roots and all, and gets rid of it. So many great services from one great company. The Cedar Eater of Texas, they have a North Texas and a South Texas location. You will access them both through the same phone number, and that's 210-745-2743. 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening into the phone lines. It's going to be Brian and Debbie and Steve, and Brian is up first. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Bob. Um, morning, sir. Quick question. I'm not going to test you too hard today. Um, <laughs> I've got a bunch of hackberry trees that dropped all their leaves a month or so ago. And I bought yep. one of these um, blower shredder, leaf shredder things online. Mm-hmm. And I've got two 30-gallon trash cans full of shredded hackberry leaves. Yes, sir. Can I use those around my tomato plants and my uh, squash plants, or is there a problem oh. with the pH issues or anything? No. No, there are no issues whatsoever. I would not blend them into the soil until they're broken down, but uh, that's a perfect mulch to put around uh, anything in your garden. I see no problems whatsoever. Um, you may wind up with a few hackberry seeds blended in there, but just be sure to pull those little hackberry trees up if they sprout before they get any size to them. But no, that sounds like a perfect mulch, and the price is right. Yeah, it. Uh, I was really impressed with this little. I, I'd looked at the steel products, and they're about three hundred fifty mm-hmm. bucks. And I found this off-name thing for eighty bucks, and I was amazed at how well it worked and, <laughs> and the construction of it. It's actually got a metal fan blade for shredding, and yeah, um, you know, I I thought, why well, eighty bucks? You can't lose much, you know. I think but, you're uh, very wise. Uh, I'm like you. I love steel products because of the reliability and the fact that it's easy to get them worked on, but uh, something can be a little bit pricey. And for 80 bucks, if you have to get a new one, you can replace it several times before you pay for that one. So it sounds like in your situation, it would be ideal. You know, the person that uses something every day and has to count on it day in and day out, a bargain is not always a bargain. But for what you're doing, it sounds like, in my opinion, you made exactly the right decision and you're getting a real good product out of it yes sir i i mean you know you probably won't use it more than a couple of times a year but especially after the big storm it you know we had a lot of leaves drop and um i've noticed is it of course is uh, it gasoline powered what go ahead okay but back up to that one time is it does it run on a gas engine or or uh, what's its power source this this is actually a a corded model um, okay which i've not super happy about, but I've got enough power cords to get where I need to get to get all the leaves. But um. well, and I yeah, and I tell you, if you uh, you know, if anything's going to sit for six months at a time, you don't want a gas engine, and you want to be sure you run ethanol free in it whenever you're running a gas engine. But uh, had a friend here tell me a long time ago, if it's going to sit, uh, you get electric or you get diesel. You don't want a gas engine, so uh, don't apologize for the cord. I think you're going to be long term. You're going to yeah. be re- real glad of it and actually about 10 years ago i started running aviation gasoline because it's got a 10-year yeah. shelf life with no ethanol in it and uh, uh perfect i don't have any carburetor problems with my stuff that said six months ago <laughs> well if you're qualified to buy at the airport or small airport around uh that's the best of all worlds not everybody can do that but you're certainly doing it right 
Well, they need to they need to start checking out their little bitty airports because most of those places don't have any requirements as far as being able to buy aviation gas. So I Good. don't know about aviation fuel, but, but yeah. about anybody can buy the aviation gas because a lot of people that, use it for the race cars too. Oh yeah, and by law it cannot contain ethanol because uh, you don't want to find out all the bad things about ethanol when you're up at five thousand feet. So it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great gasoline source if it's available to you. So uh, sounds like you're doing everything right. And I, I think those hackberry leaves would be good compost. And uh, the other thing about it too is uh, hackberries because they're relatively soft material, they're going to decompose fairly rapidly. So I would keep them some uh, keep them as a on the surface around tomatoes or squash or anything else the first year but by the end of a year they will decompose have decomposed to the point that if they kind of get blended into the soil that you're planting your next crop it's not going to cause any problems whatsoever i think you're doing it all right well thank you sir that's what i was that's what i was hoping for and i just wanted to check with uh with my garden gear and make sure I was actually doing that <laughs> Well, it's always a pleasure visiting with you, and uh, hope you grow a good garden That's this year. Great. And long as we long as we stay hail-free, I think it's going to be a great year for gardening. So uh, call me anytime I can help. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Have a great day. You too. Uh, Debbie's up next. Good morning, Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Is Hi, Debbie there? and every comment that you have uh, made on grapefruit trees. Yes. And we had um, we have three grapefruit trees. They're 15 to 20 years old. They lost all of their leaves, and the bark is splitting and cracking. Is there anything I can do? Uh, once again, I would uh, go to Howard Garrett's website, dirtdoctor.com, and I would apply what he calls the sick tree treatment. It's good for healthy trees as well as trees with problems. Do you happen to know if these were grown from seed or if they were purchased as grafted trees 15 or 20 years ago? I don't know. Uh, they okay. were here on the property when we moved in a couple years ago. Okay. You know, the, the rootstock that they use for grafting is much more cold hardy than the tops of the trees, whatever kind of citrus it is. And if they're grafted trees, uh, if the rootstock sprouts out, then you, uh, you know, then, then you want to cut that back and try to force it to, uh, put the growth into the top of the trees. If you have major splits in the bark, you might as well cut those trees down to at least the point where the splits are. Now, I've got a bay tree with huge splits into it, and it's split almost to the ground, but at ground level, it's coming back finally. It's coming back very strong. But if, you know, and and this is something else for people who have just a little bit of growth in the top of any tree, if you've got big splits in the bark, having that growth in the top of the tree is not necessarily a good thing. That's probably going to die back anyway. So where you've got the splits, you might as well go ahead and cut the trees down to that point. Hopefully they are on their own roots. Hopefully they will sprout out again at that point. And because they have a very mature root system, they can regrow very quickly. Uh, the arborists that I talked to, and I talked to some very good arborists, they all seem to agree that we're going to put 4th of July as the deadline on trees. Now, perennials and things like that, uh, maybe Mother's Day is a good target date, but we're not going to be cutting down big trees. We may be cutting them back, but we're not going to think about taking them out until the 4th of July. If we're not seeing any growth on them by the 4th of July, they're probably gone. But uh, I've had things sprout out the past week that uh, had looked totally dead up until this point so there there is still some hope okay so 
So maybe just cut off some of the thinner branches at the very top, even though these trees are 15 and 20 feet tall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, just just keep cutting down. Ultimately, any growth that comes out and remains is going to be below the level of those big splits. What happens when they split? It actually totally disrupts the tissue we call phloem that takes nutrients to the roots, and it disrupts the tissue we call cambium, which is what makes new xylem and phloem. So uh, where you have splits, you can pretty much figure that 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 trunk is, uh, is, is in effect dead down to that point. So I begin by cutting off the longer limbs, but uh, ultimately, um, and I look at our Hong Kong orchid tree, which is obviously not citrus, but it's similarly not cold hardy. And uh, it, we wrapped the trunk, but couldn't, of course, uh, wrap the whole top. Well, the whole top froze, but that lower part of the trunk is already re-sprouted and grown up two feet tall. So we'll hope that it sprouts out, but uh, I went ahead early on and cut off everything, you know, down to the point of the splits because I know there's not going to be any quality growth come out above that point. So when you have the opportunity and can safely do so, I go ahead and do some pretty major pruning on the top of those trees. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right, need to take a break here. Steve will be up next, and then we'll just move right on down the list. But uh, uh, once again, I get to talk to you about uh, some really good folks out there, and that would be Rhonda and her family at Rhonda's Nature's Way. Now, you can't go visit them today because they're closed on Sunday and every Sunday. But let me tell you, the other six days a week, Rhonda's Nature's Way is just a, just an incredible place to visit. They're not big, fancy you know, box store type of pharmacies. They are a family health food store with so much more. And I like to say, Rhonda and her family have been in this business for many, many years. They know what works, they know what doesn't work, and they know what represents absolute quality. Let me tell you, the supplements, the vitamins that they offer, way beyond anything you're going to find in a box store or a box pharmacy or grocery store, way above that in quality. You're going to find that they have some very specialized products to help with special needs. If you have digestive issues, mood issues, sleep issues, some really good things out there. If you have pain, let me tell you what, uh, things like the new, uh, some of their new products like the Curamed, which is, uh, you know, a turmeric product is like 200 times as effective as what you get on the grocery store shelves. I can just go on and on about that and some of the French grapeseed extract. The uh, immune support that I purchased from her, let me tell you what, I just feel like having a strong immune system is going to be your best defense against COVID, against the flu, against anything that's going to try to get you. And I rely on Rhonda. You know, I talk to her very frequently. I visit her stores very frequently. And uh, I'll challenge you to keep up with, <laughs> with me as far as what I get done in a day's time. And I give a lot of credit to Rhonda and, uh, and her good staff. Plus, they've got a lot of good things. If you're trying to lose some weight, she's got products that takes good but are very, very diet compliant. I just remember that uh, a while back I got some mock fruit sweetened dark chocolate from her. Oh, and you can salivate just thinking about that. It's just a wonderful place to visit. Southside stores on Southwest Military, Northside store, center there at I-10 in Callahan, open Monday through Saturday at Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Steve, Beverly, and Lois will be my next three callers, and Steve is up first. Good morning, Steve. Hey, good morning, Bob. Hey, a couple of questions today. Um, of course, this uh, freeze was the great reset, and I'm rethinking some of the plants <laughs> in my yard. 
One of them was a Scarlet Oleander that wasn't doing so well, and I'm thinking of taking it out. And I wanted okay. to put a vegetable garden in there. Will, okay. Uh, or, I understand that the leaves, aren't they toxic or or yeah. kind of irritant? They, can they, I... contain, they contain something very toxic, but it's not something that's going to be taken up in future crops. So uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily blend them into the soil, but I wouldn't hesitate to, uh, to put a vegetable garden in that area. I don't think you're going to – I don't think you'd have any problems at all. Okay, because I thought – you know, once I pull up as many of the roots and leaves that I can, I was just going to put some compost and organic uh, fertilizer on there to try to prepare it for the next uh, growing season. In the- sounds sounds like a good plan. I uh, should have done it yesterday, but uh, uh, the second best time is today. <laughs> so, no, I, as long as it gets good sun, it should do fine. Now, if you like red oleanders, they're sort of a watermelon red color one that they simply call hardy red, and they came through the freeze without too much problem. Some of the tops froze, but they're coming back gangbusters. So uh, I'm not going to cross oleanders off the list. Uh, I don't recommend planting big numbers of them because there is a relatively new disease, new disease out there called bacterial leaf scorch that's kind of discouraged the highway department from doing their planting, but they do you know, too much with chemicals anyway. So, uh, uh, but by all means, get a vegetable garden going. If the oleander did well, it probably means it's good and sunny, which means it should be a good place for a vegetable garden. And uh, I, I think it would be wise to rake away the old leaves, but that soil's not not full of any toxins that are going to get into your veggies. Okay, good. And uh, a second question is, I uh, I have a neighbor. I'm, I'm He's north of my house, and uh, it slopes from his side to my side. And he's got a wooden fence there, and under the, of course, because it's a higher ground, soil is uh, leached out or, you know, kind of gone through the fence, and mm-hmm. now there's a gap under the fence in like eight inches. And he's put okay. stones all along his side of the fence to try to prevent more soil from eroding. But uh-huh. I mean, couldn't I put some kind of plantings or, I don't know, liripe or something that would at least kind of hold that dirt so it doesn't continue? I, it would certainly be a good idea, liriope or ophiopogon or any of the native grasses or for that matter even any of the ornamental grasses, uh, even though some of the ornamental grasses freeze down, uh, they're going to do a, a good job. And just remember that anything that restricts the velocity of the water is going to reduce the amount of erosion you get. I don't know why I can't convince some people in government about that who want me to take every speck of uh, woody vegetation out of the spillway on my, you know, lake. But um, no, any anything like that, and uh, I, I think any of your your grasses or similar plants are going to be the absolute best, you know, at both reducing erosion and reducing the velocity of the water that causes the erosion. And uh, I get after it whenever you can. Is this a sunny area? Uh, yeah, pretty much. At least half of half of the day before the uh, I think the afternoon sun shades it. Okay. Uh, well, you can go, you know, go either way you like, uh, ornamental grasses or, and the ornamental grasses are certainly probably the most durable long term, but uh, they're, well, just depending on what you plant, they may or may not be as attractive as monkey grass or something like that, but you're on the right track, something with a, a thick vegetation and a thick root system, and uh, wish he'd planted them on his side of the fence back when he built the fence, and you wouldn't be looking at this issue, but... Sounds like you've got a little bit more cranial capacity than whoever built it originally. <laughs> and do you think I need to build up some soil, though, on my side to 
I, I don't know if it raised bed a little bit or just kind of plant what I've got. It would, you know, um, it depends on, on where you are and how much soil you already have. If you have 8 or 10 inches of good soil, you don't need to do anything. But if you're, if you're getting down closer to a layer of caliche or a layer of rock, uh, something, you know, along there, you know, just anything that will hold the soil back would be a good plan. And that could be anything from more native stone to, uh, you know, cinder blocks to, if you're going to use lumber, I certainly would not use treated lumber. You can, uh, you can use, uh, the, the synthetic wood they call Trex, T-R-E-X, which does not rot and does not get termites. Uh, if for appearance's sake you want to use an actual lumber, the one that I would uh, look for is is called Eco, E-C-O, Eco Vantage Wood. Do not use the treated wood. It's going to rot out in five years for you. But the uh, Eco Vantage is a special heat-treated wood that I could also talk about for an hour. It's what I just built a greenhouse out of, and I built several decks out of it. It's just an incredible building material. Doesn't warp, doesn't cup. A little hard to find unless you're buying it in some quantities. But if you want real wood that'll stay there, will not get termites, and uh, will last for 50 years probably, uh, Google Eco, Eco Vantage and uh, see where you can find it. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, I went to your nursery the other week, and I was amazed by the changes you've done. It's a lot of great things. and looking forward to all the plants uh, you have filling that up to sell cause <laughs> well crazy. you know yesterday morning it actually looked restocked for the first time in probably three months today it's uh it's a little bit thinner and by the end of the day today <laughs> it's probably going to be pretty thin but things are they're certainly not back to normal trees or shrubs are still hard to come by but the growers have caught up a little bit on perennials and annuals and tropicals so uh, it just gets prettier every day just stop by and stick your head in when you're ever going by this way and uh just uh, just absorb a little bit of beauty and uh, we look forward to seeing you great thanks bob you have a good day i appreciate your you do the help. same steve no it's my pleasure goodbye all right beverly's next in line good morning beverly yes two questions first of all salt cedars is there any hope for them we have one that's over 50 years old a real yep. large one and no green has come on it at all uh, there is still hope. Uh, again, uh, water it is probably one of the most important things. If you want to put a little Super Thrive, a little bit of Garrett juice on there, uh, this will increase its chances. Most of the salt cedar that I've looked at is coming back, but uh, some of it is real late sprouting. And again, I'm not going to give up on it for another six weeks or so. But uh, go to go to Howard's uh, website, doctor.com and look at what he calls a sick tree treatment, that 50-year-old salt Cedar would very definitely benefit for what he's listing there. Okay. Okay, a question, too. My niece lives across the street, and she has a, probably a live oak tree, and she wants to cut it down. It's about 15 years old, and underneath the tree is nothing but little green sprouts, I guess, like little green uh, trees trying to come up, and she can't get any grass. I mean, it's co- covered 100%. Is there anything she can do to get rid of that so she can have grass under that tree? Well, of course, the reason she doesn't have grass is a lack of light. And that's the problem when you get a big, it's, you know, two-edged sword. Everybody wants shade, but then you get so much shade that the grass won't grow. So I hate to see somebody take a tree out, just uh, especially a live oak, just to be able to grow grass. 
Um, the the little sprouts coming up are not from acorns. They're actually coming off the roots of the tree, and it's a sign that the tree is stressed. The tree may be buried too deeply. The tree may be just suffering from drought stress. But all those little things that look like individual trees are actually just sprouts coming up off the roots. And uh, just getting light in there is what it's going to take to get some grass growing. Uh, she might consider just pruning the tree up. Or you could always go with the ground cover like monkey grass or Asiatic jasmine or, you know, some of the things that will grow. We create a beautiful bed under there with things like holly fern and akubas and aspidistra. There are a lot of things that will look beautiful in the shade, but uh, unless she gets more grass, there's no hope, or I mean, no more light, there's no hope in getting grass to grow. Okay, and then that will get rid of all those little green sprouts if she trims up the tree, possibly? Because well, I mean, it. It's not one little inch that's not those little green sprouts. And she cuts the grass every I mean, cuts under the tree every week. Well, anything that reduces the stress will reduce the little sprout. Okay. I suspect that tree has not been getting much water. Uh, that's the main thing that's happening right now because we are definitely in a drought. And uh, yes. uh, just uh, just watering a little more regularly and probably some good fertilizer. And like I say, check to be sure that the root flare is exposed on that tree. Uh, anything you can do to reduce the stress on the tree is going to reduce the number of sprouts. And conversely, if you don't reduce the stress, nothing you can do will get rid of the root sprouts. Okay, well, I'll tell her. Oh, and I was going to tell you, all of them, and I have 13 of them, all of my Sega Palms is come back. I mean, they're Good. just big, big leaves already, so I'm so happy. I'm glad that they've come back for you. We thought they probably would, now you're seeing the proof of it, Beverly. Yeah. You have a wonderful okay, day, you. and my okay, pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. You're you're welcome. Bye. All right. Let me get a uh, break done here. Lois will be up next, and then we'll go on from there. I get to talk about the Tank Depot. And uh, once again, it's all about quality. You know, there's virtually nothing in the world that somebody can't make cheaper and uh, make more poorly and sell for a cheaper price. And every time I drive by some of the box stores, and they don't have to be mentioned by names, but you see all those thin wall tanks out there. Ah, uh, that's not what you want to put in if you need to tank, especially if you're getting into rainwater catchment and all the good things that you can use a tank for. You want a quality tank at a reasonable price, and that's the mantra of the Tank Depot. Been around for a long time, offering a wide range of tanks, all the way from very small to extremely large. And, of course, they can offer... Uh, they can offer delivery, and that's going to be important on the really big tanks. Getting into rainwater catchment, they've got every size and shape you could imagine, including tanks that don't even look like rainwater catchment tanks. But they've also got chemical tanks, transfer tanks, storage tanks, open-top tanks, bait tanks, you name it. If it's a tank, the best place for you to look for it is at the Tank Depot. Weekends, go to their website. It's tank-depot, D-E-P-O-T, tank-depot.com. Weekdays, you can go by and see a pretty representative sampling of what all they carry. Their materials yard is over on Southeast Loop 410, just south of Rigsby Avenue, the Tank Depot. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right. Once again, I'll give you the next three callers, and it's going to be Lois and Hank and Gary. And uh, we'll see how many of those we get in before the news break. But then we've got another hour to go, so hang on there. And uh, good morning, Lois. Uh, you're up next. Hi, Bob. Uh, Hi there. I have two questions for you. Okay. Okay. The first one is I have 
I built my house 21 years ago, and we've got a lot of barn swallows. They make mm-hmm. colonies on the house, and we've tried different <laughs> things over the years. Yeah. What actually does work? Um, uh, it's you know I have had fewer since I painted the underside of my eaves light blue, but it has not totally discouraged them. Other than just knocking the nest down as quickly as they try to build them, um, the only thing that can work that I've ever seen is a physical barrier of some sort. And uh, believe me, anybody in the country has you know has dealt with them. I've known people to put up chicken wire, to put up all sorts of different things. Rubber snakes work for a while because uh, the the tree climbing Lindheimer's rat snakes eats barn swallows, but. Uh, they're a mess, and, and they are very messy as well. And I don't know of any permanent solution to the to the problem, except you know the areas that they want to build some sort of physical barrier up there, whether it's you know spikes or whether it's wire, whatever. Um, it doesn't look very attractive, but they they are a nuisance and a difficult nuisance. Okay. Um, well, well, wish I could wish I could do better than that, but. Uh, I, you know, we all we all fight them. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, my business partner did uh, on her home, and in this case, it's Phoebe's, but they are much the same as barn swallows. She put a couple of little nesting platforms, you know, up just a horizontal, small horizontal shelf, up toward the eaves in places that she re- didn't really mind having them, and where she wasn't going to get the poop all over her porch constantly. And they have chosen to nest in those places instead away from the other places so that's one more idea you might try okay okay well that's good um my other question is is different um we have uh, a couple of citrus trees and we had them in some uh, molasses tubs very good they they froze well they they have suckers coming up from the bottom of them will they ever produce fruit well, see, here's the problem. On most citrus is grafted, and it's, you know, the scion is what we call the top of the tree, which is a lemon or lime or whatever, and then the rootstock is what it is grafted onto. The rootstocks are typically much more cold-hardy than the tops, and all that, ba- all that growth that comes out below the graft point is not going to produce what you want. It's going to have giant thorns and inedible fruit. So anything coming out below the graft point really should be cut off immediately to try to force the growth into the upper part of the tree. Now, in some cases, the upper part of the tree is going to come out, usually down pretty low, but uh, in, there's there's a lot of citrus coming back. If it doesn't come back, then you do one of two things. You either get new citrus or you let a little bit of that rootstock grow up and then regraft it with your particular variety that you like, or for that matter, you can create what we refer to as a fruit cocktail tree you could let the rootstock regrow and you could graft a lime on one limb a lemon on the other a tangerine on the other and have a funny looking tree that produces four different kinds of fruit but uh, the the growth that's coming out there is not going to be productive for you you either need to regraft or you need to take it out and hope that the top of the tree comes out probably not going to come out from real high up but anything that comes up above the graft point will regrow quickly Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You're very helpful. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, Don, let's get started with Hank. We may have to hold you through the news break, Hank, but let's get started with the questions. Good morning. 
Okay, morning, Bob. I got two questions for you. Okay. I was uh, had a neighbor that uh, had some. Ce- we think they're cedar elms. So uh-huh. They're splitting open. They're not budding yeah. out. They're split open and they're shedding bark. And I said, "Well, I hadn't seen anything that affected the cedar elm." I said, "Let me go walk around and look at mine." And uh, I didn't see any problem with any of mine. There's uh, yeah. I had a bunch of them mixed all in between the oaks. Uh, I I yeah. suspect your your neighbor has something called a lace bark elm, which is very very similar to a cedar elm, but it's not nearly as cold hardy. I'm like you. My cedar elms are in beautiful shape, but there are a lot of lace bark elms that are not going to survive this. And all every lace bark elm that I've looked at is badly damaged and. Uh, I, I very much suspect that that's what your neighbor has. Uh, they're very similar to cedar elms, but I think they're looking at lace bark. Yeah, yeah, the leaf looks the same, but the bark yeah. is a little different. Well, there you okay. got it. Well, while I was looking around at my cedar elms, I started noticing uh, all the native uh, persimmon that's uh, the ones I left. They're mixed in between the trees. None of them mm-hmm. are budding out, and I didn't think anything bothered them. Well, they probably will butt out. Man, if you can find a way to get rid of those, uh, you can make a lot of money on that. But uh, there, it's probably as much drought as it is anything else because those blasted things, when it gets real dry, they just drop all their leaves and wait for rain, and then they just sprout right back out again. So um, I suspect they will come back out. I have looked at a lot of them, and I've not seen one single one that's uh, affected by the cold. But there are a lot of them that are still uh, pretty much... Uh, pretty much uh, deciduous just just from the drought oh okay well that makes sense okay still trying to figure out what's coming out and what's not but uh that answers two of my questions <laughs> well welcome to the club and if you can figure out a way to make it rain we'll get some answers a lot faster okay i'm working on it thanks for the call hank really appreciate it uh gary we'll get to you after the news here on ktsa radio South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back for our last hour of gardening for today. But time to get a lot of phone calls in there. Gary and JT and Margaret are going to be the next three callers. And uh, let me take just a second before we go back to the phone lines to remind you of something special going on next next weekend. And that's going to be the big... Uh, Fish fry, you know, we've uh, always enjoyed that. Uh, the Bernie Fire Volunteer Fire Department uh, has always put on, well, they didn't do it at all last year because of COVID, but uh, uh, they're once again doing kind of a modified fish fry this time around, and it's going to be drive-through in effect. And uh, you can go by. I love the fish. I love the hush puppies. Really, really good. And you can go through any time between uh, 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. This is Sunday, May 2nd, next weekend. Um, the uh, a week from today, between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m., you can drive through and get a plate to go. If you want to participate in the auctions and things, they're going to be online. But let me tell you, if it doesn't rain, a lot of us are going to be very thankful to have uh, have great volunteer firemen and women out there. And, uh, of course, Bernie Fire Department is a combination of volunteer and paid staff. But let me tell you, it's just an organization really, really worth supporting. And uh, next Sunday is going to be your opportunity to do so with a drive through fish fry, so to speak. And uh, uh, I'm sure you can get more information on their website. But uh, just bottom line is the same great food to go between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. a week from today. Having told you that, let's get back to gardening. And Gary will be up first. Good morning, Gary. Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing good. I was good. Uh, fortunate enough to get some some red bud uh, 
germinated and uh and i planted them in the yard already i have quite a few coming up uh, good i wanted it to be a, a become a tree but my wife was saying she thought she had read where you need to start them in a small pot and then kind of increase the pot size to get them to be a tree uh, instead of a bush. Uh, <laughs> have you ever seen Mother Nature? Have you ever seen Mother Nature plant them in a pot and then move it up to a bigger and bigger size? And Mother Nature creates a pretty nice tree out there. No, sir. Uh, in, in this case, you've got it right. Now, depending on where they are and depending on the type of red bud, there are many different types of red bud. And there's one called the Mexican red bud, which actually grows much more as a bush. Uh, but your Texas red bud is, uh, given the opportunity, it wants to make a tree, sometimes single trunk, sometimes multiple trunk but whether you uh, and and you you know the thing about starting them in a pot is you can guarantee that about a hundred percent of the seeds you plant each one of those will make a tree mother nature doesn't have quite such a high percentage or else the whole world would be nothing but red bud trees so if you choose to plant them in a pot move them up 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 you can certainly create a beautiful tree that way but it uh, makes no difference how they get started as whether they become a tree or not. Now, having told you that, I will tell you that most people kill redbuds with kindness. Redbud is a tree that once it's established, you almost never have to water it. And people that buy redbuds or start them in pots and put the pot on the ground frequently kill them by watering them too frequently. So uh, keep that in mind moving forward. But <laughs> your, your seedlings are going to make real nice trees and... Uh, uh, you certainly don't have to do it in a pot. Sorry, in this case, you're the one that uh, got that argument correct. <laughs> okay, I'll be sure to tell her then. So. so I made just one friend and one enemy with that information, but such is life. <laughs> uh, so I have been watering them every other day, so maybe slack off on that a little bit. Well, water real thir- when you water water really thoroughly, when the soil's good and dry on the surface, it's time to water again. Uh, you've gotten away with it because we're in a very dry period, but I tell you, we, we actually get into a rainier period. And my meteorologist that I trust, who is a true meteorologist, not some clown on radio or TV, but uh, his technical, if you ask, uh, <laughs> he loves to talk technical stuff, which he does to our groundwater district, but uh, David said we are moving out of what is called... Uh, La Nina, which is a very dry condition, into what we call Enso Neutral, which gives us a chance for much better rainfall and the fact that it's going to happen in uh, May and June, which are two of the months of the year that we have our best chances for rainfall. David says we've got a real good chance of picking up some good rains as we get closer to summer. Uh, from there, we can stay in El- in uh, Enso Neutral, we can move back into a dry La Nina, or we can move into El Nino, which would be even wetter so you know us farmers and ranchers we we grasp at any hope there is and right now at least late spring early summer looks like we have a better chance of improving rainfall and you definitely do not want to be watering those red buds too often if that indeed does happen right okay all right well that answers my question i appreciate the help long answer to a short question sorry about that but uh i have to explain is (laughs) <laughs> this answer. Gary, you guys have a great day, and uh, tell her she'll probably be the one that's right next time. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay, nothing wrong with little teasing going on out there. <laughs> next up is JT. Good morning, JT. How are you today? Hey, good morning, Bob. I probably opened myself up for some teasing on this one, but uh, I'm hoping I didn't shoot myself in the foot too bad yesterday. I was mixing up some uh, uh, seed starting mix and some soil that I wanted to use to pot up some plants. 
Okay. Carefully stir, carefully stir in a scoop full of fire ants. <laughs> okay. I used some, uh, you know, your uh, orange oil and water to soak that pot mm-hmm. or soak that soak that bucket. Have I ruined that for starting seeds for? Any oh no, no. You need to let it dry out good, but you're just fine. And uh, you know, I I probably would flush a little bit of clear water through it, um, but I think you did more than you needed to. And here's the reason why: in that there is only one type of fire ant uh, called the queen that is capable of reproducing. Now, some of our what they call super mounds can actually have several queens in them, but you could put a thousand worker fire ants in there and they would all die out without the queen. The, the colony has to have a queen in order to survive. So if you just got some soil with some fire ants in it, chances are you didn't get any queens and the fire ants would have died out anyway, but you certainly speeded the process up with your orange oil and water and and uh, once that soil's dried out a bit, you can use that soil for any gardening purpose you wish. All righty, very good. Appreciate all the help, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. Well, I wish you the same, JT, and I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. And we get to a third caller in this little segment, and that would be Margaret. Good morning, Margaret. Hi, good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my good call. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Okay. Sure. Um, I have a little list here. Uh, dwarf oleander was in the ground and it still has not come back up yet. Um, Probably dead probably in this case. Oh, oh. Yeah. The well, dwarfs are not... Yeah, dwarfs are not nearly as cold-hardy as the big ones, and across the board, the only big one that is definitively cold-hardy is the hardy red, but I hate to say it, most of the dwarfs, unless they were protected, um, it's time for a new plant. Well, I did have it covered with uh, the insulate, and then, of course, the okay. snow... Okay. Um, so was it was it in the ground yes. or in a pot? Yes. Okay. No, well, the then don't don't jump the gun. We're going to give it till the fourth of July before we pronounce okay. it dead. You can probably cut the top back because I'm sure yep. the top is frozen, but uh, yep. covered and protected like that, it still has a good chance of coming out. Okay. I didn't know how long to give it, so July fourth. Okay. That's that's um, the date the arborist are giving me. Great. Uh, I mean, I'm putting the Medina granules on it. I gave it some Super Thrive. I'm I'm trying everything I can do. So that's the, <laughs> and that's the best you can do. Um, yeah. Um, okay, Mexican Buckeye. Um, mm-hmm. I have a couple places out uh, where the deer destroyed a, a yucca, a, a uh-huh. Spanish dagger. Can I put Mexican Buckeye out there, or will the deer eat it? You know, they don't like it. Um, I, I, if you're in Fair Oaks or Hollywood Park or a place where you just, you know, the deer are so thick you can't walk out mm-hmm. without running off a dozen of them, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. starving and they will eat almost anything. But buc- Mexican buckeye is one of the most deer resistant plants I know of. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that the bucks aren't going to want to rub their antlers on them, marking oh, them yeah. and rubbing the velvet off the antlers. Can't guarantee that. But, uh, I, you know, my ranch is covered with both Texas buckeye and Mexican buckeye, and the deer totally leave them both alone. So I think you're in good shape. Hmm. Okay. I might give it a try. Yeah, keep in mind they are two totally different plants. Uh, the uh, Texas buckeye is a genus we call Asculus. The uh, Mexican buckeye real weird name ugnadia but it's it's the big woody one with the pink flowers and it's by far the prettier plant to have in the landscape okay. and uh, i think they're great okay that's the one i have okay good um thrips or no when i walk out where my swiss mm-hmm. chard is um uh-huh. 
they're they're getting on me. Can I spray okay. that area with spinosad or? Probably spray with garlic. Um, that's one of the best things to repel thrips. Uh, spinosad, you'll kill the ones you get it on, but spinosad's also harmful to bees and a few other beneficials. Thrips do not like the taste or smell of garlic, and uh, especially spraying the plants that they're going after, like your roses, maybe some of your wintertime bedding plants that are starting to uh, fade out. Uh, it's our best bet for totally eliminating them. You can make your own garlic with a garlic press and clothes from the grocery store, or you can buy it at most nurseries under the name of either garlic barrier or mosquito barrier. And that's one more good thing. And that in addition to repelling the thrips, you'll do a good job of keeping mosquitoes away for a while. Okay, great, great. And last question: um, When I water house plants, I had some beautiful ceramic pottery that I got from you guys. Uh-huh. And I have a water softener, but just from sitting in water when I let it sit for maybe an hour, it's okay. developing like that white film around mm-hmm. the bottom of the p- container. How do I get that off? Um, you can, or? yeah, vinegar is probably the best thing you can use. I, of course, prefer, prefer apple cider vinegar anytime I'm down around the root system of plants, but uh, anything acidic is going to take it off, and vinegar, of course, is one of the safest things you can use. It's probably, you know, just like a mineral that may be leaching out of the yeah. pot, which is uh, totally normal. And I, it, to me, it creates, you know, an interesting look. And uh, some of the some of the people we visit at the gift markets, they charge a lot more for aged pots than they do oh, no. for the fresh terracotta. <laughs> so uh, and think about whether or not you really want to get it off. But if you find it objectionable, yeah, vinegar would be uh-huh. a great thing to do. Just uh, avoid putting it on your plants. Okay, great. Will do. Okay, thank you so much. Let's let's back up to one more thing, Margaret, and that is next winter, probably about next December or January, in the area in the areas that you really love being outside, put out some beneficial nematodes because the the thrips, and that's probably what's biting you, uh, they are in the ground in a larval state over the winter months, and the beneficial nematodes will totally eliminate the larvae. And it's uh, but if you wait until they're already out and causing problems, nematodes aren't going to do you any good. But putting out a, uh, a round of beneficial nematodes in the December-January time frame will really reduce your thrips problems later in the year. Okay, great. I'll keep that in mind. Thank you. You enjoy your day, and thank you for the call this morning. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, goodbye. Uh, Don, no more lives, so let's run those recorded commercials and get back to some more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next three callers are Steve and Cindy and Phil, and Steve is up first. Good morning, Steve. Morning. Hey, can you morning, sir. explain the difference between the Medina Growing Green and the Has to Grow plant, other than one's a liquid and one's a solid? <laughs> well, the uh, happy to. That's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever really asked that before. The growing green fertilizer is based on a poultry litter product, and that's the main source of nitrogen and probably the main source of organic material. Medina used to buy their poultry litter off the East Coast, and then they coated it with other things. Probably six, eight years ago, Medina actually built what is called a pelletizing mill, which is uh, where they take that poultry 
grocery litter and actually turn it into little granules. Because you're doing it in Hondo now, they actually blend into the poultry litter. They add all the things. I'm only supposed to talk about the things that are on the label, but, you know, that includes uh, green sand and uh, humates, dry humates, molasses. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do this legally. I suspect that they probably put in some mycorrhizal fungi and a number of other things, but they blend it all together, and then they make the pellets, which uh, just makes it a top-quality granular fertilizer. The Medina has to grow plant and has to grow lawn are based strictly on liquid products. Uh, they We can't call them fully organic. They can't be certified organic because Stuart uses a little bit of uh, something called synthetic urea, which is identical chemically to natural urea, but natural urea costs about three times as much, and Stuart says, I, I don't want to you know, run the price up on the product just to get that certified label on there. So your liquid is composed of other liquid products, which include liquid seaweed, which include liquid humates, uh, which include uh, you know, liquid fertilizer products of various sorts, uh, fish blend products, and things like that. So you 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 wind up with the same thing, which is a fertilizer, meaning that it has uh, the appropriate quantities of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and then it has all those extra micronutrients and microbial life. They're in slightly different sources, or they're from slightly different sources in the growing green than they are in the liquid product. Uh, but you know, they're they're just two different means to the same end, so to speak. Does that does that give you the explanation? you're looking for yeah but really i was wondering as far as availability to the plant does, does the granular take have to does it take a while before or is, it, is the liquid immediate the liquid is more immediate than the granular a lot of the products that are in the liquid state and uh, a friend once said and it's not a hundred percent true but it said uh, plants drink but they don't eat so uh, we've we've learned since that time the plant roots are actually capable of absorbing some particular material so that's not a hundred percent true but liquids are much more readily available to the plant so your liquid fertilizer is always going to be faster acting now the downside of that is that the nutrients in the liquid are going to be used up a lot faster and when somebody is relying strictly on a liquid fertilizer I'm going to tell them to be using it about every 30 days where when you're using a granular product you're uh, because it is bacterially digested and and then made available to the plants. It's got a life in the soil of more like 90 days. I do both in my vegetable garden, in my flower beds, things like that. I put the dry granule down when I plant, but then I'm going to follow it up over time with the liquid. So uh, a great question. Yes, the liquid is much more readily available to the plant, but it also has to be reapplied much more frequently. Perfect. That's what I wanted to know. Thanks. Well, it's my pleasure. Good question, and I appreciate the call. Okay, next up is Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Hey, good morning, Bob. Well, good morning. I know which Cindy this is. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. I'm going to ask you again about my Althea. I know okay. they grow them up north, but mine, I did a good look at it, and of course, there's no leafing out yet. Uh, down at the base of the trunk, it looks like shredded wood, and a lot of the bark is peeling off. The root flares is very smooth, uh, like a crepe myrtle, mm-hmm. and 
but <laughs> Terry says that some of the branches are bendable. Okay. But I'm just worried about that peeling of the bark. Well, you know, Althea's do shed their bark a little bit more than some plants. Not as much as a crepe myrtle or a sycamore, but there is a little bit of exfoliation on the bark. What I would do in this case, because Althea's should be totally cold hardy. Uh, I mean, it gets to 10 to 15 below zero in the part of East Tennessee where my mom lived. And uh, she, you know, her Althea's came back year after year. I'm going to suggest at this point, take your pruning shears and the different branches on the plant. Cut back by about a third or maybe even a half because sometimes um, the, the, the plant's alive, but you just don't have enough of a concentration of what we call the auxins in there to make the buds break and begin to grow. When you cut things back, uh, the auxin tends to concentrate at the point that's cut, and many times that will encourage you to come out. If it's just sort of borderline, can't really decide whether it's going to leaf out or not, if you just let it sit there, it will just slowly deteriorate and probably won't come out. Many times by cutting it back a reasonable amount, uh, you will in effect force it to branch out, and on an alfie, if it hasn't started coming out yet, I think that uh, that pruning would be in order. Don't cut it all the way down, but cut the individual limbs back by about a third, and let's see what happens. Okay, I did that to my sweet olive, and, and now it's uh, budding out. Getting Good. Leaves all over. So yeah, let's that. let's do the same thing for the Althea now. Okay, and I think Terry's going to give up on our Hong Kong orchids. They just, every year, they just die back, and they come back, and they never bloom, and then they die back again, so I think he's going to give up on them. Well, you're up in the hill country, and I've never tried growing one in Bernie, and I probably won't. Um, We obviously did the right thing here at the nursery, and we are warmer than you, but I knew we could never protect the whole tree, so got the guys to, because at this point I was stranded, uh, you know, in Fernie with the ice and all, but got the guys to wrap the trunk of the tree several layers thick with insulate, and the top froze back totally. And I'm amazed at how dry and brittle because it was, it wasn't, you know, more than six weeks after it actually froze that I cut all that back, and it was just brittle, brittle. But, and, and the top was totally dead, but where we wrapped the trunk, it's already sprouting out all over the place. I'm a little surprised yours is not sprouting out, so don't let him pull it out. Out of the ground cut it down to about six inches tall and let's see if that forces it to come out but uh, at least here our Hong Kong orchid is putting on an amazing amount of new growth now that it has started coming out again but it's all down fairly low uh, you know low on the trunk it's certainly not up in the top of the tree yeah we do have new growth but he's just he just says enough enough it just doesn't get <laughs> big enough to bloom and so he just says forget it well, just tell them his other options to build a very large greenhouse over it, which you could use for other purposes. And uh, that actually is kind of a pretty vision to have a Hong Kong orchid tree inside of a greenhouse with other things around it. But, you know, I'm with him. It's one of those things that, that when it freezes back, we know it's going to be a full year before it really starts to bloom again. And where you are and where it freezes back that frequently, yeah, he could probably find something else. If you love the look of the orchid, 
orchid tree. Now, you won't get the same beautiful color, but the so-called anacacho, which is the white flowering orchid tree, and there's also a pink form, it is much more cold hardy, and it will give you smaller flowers, but the same flower almost every year. So if he wants to replace it with something, he's not going to have that beautiful cerise-colored flower, but if you just want to have an orchid tree out there, look at what they call the anacacho uh orchid tree and bohenia congesta i believe it's his botanical name but uh it could be a good substitute it's going to be more of a bush than a tree but if you're looking for something in that same genus uh i'd sure give it a try yeah we do have an anacacha and i also okay. have a bohenia vine and, uh-huh. and it blooms and it's coming back like crazy yeah. so yeah sure we got the same thing but I did tell him yesterday, I need a bigger greenhouse. And he says, where are you going to build it? And I said, I don't know, but I'll find a place. No, the question is, where are you going to build it should have been your response. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, exactly. it, it's a funny thing, and I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I used to know a dentist up in, uh, actually, I think he was in, I can't remember if it's Tulsa or Oklahoma City, uh, named John Kramer, but uh, he was limited in space, and he actually built a two-story greenhouse, and for the floor on the second story, he used that welded wire fabric, which was plenty strong enough to walk on where it was well-supported, and uh, he had a great two-story greenhouse with a very small footprint on his lot, and uh, I won't say he doubled his orchid collection, but he probably increased it by 80%, so uh, a creative person uh, like Terry might might come up with some hybrid there that uh, <laughs> might might increase the space and and he's probably out there cursing me right now for making more work well, for him. But uh, texting right texting me right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, there are lots there are lots of options to uh, to increasing greenhouse space, Cindy. So uh, it's always good to talk to you. You guys have a great Sunday. Okay, thank you. You're sure welcome. Thank you. Bye. All right. Guess we better get a break in here, so run those recorded stock, and we'll get back with more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Phil and Ken and David. Phil is up first. Good morning, Phil. How are you? I'm good, sir. How are you doing today? Oh, good, good, beautiful day, doing a lot. Don't feel like I'm getting much done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Sunday, you know. You just uh, Sunday shouldn't be crammed so full of things to do that you that you don't feel productive. But neither should it leave you exhausted at the end of the day. Because for you know, for some of us at least, Monday's just back to work. For me, it's just uh, Sunday's just another work day, but it's always a fun day and. I tell you what, it's it's a beautiful day. I'm sitting here looking out the window at a at quite an array of beautiful plants and quite an array of beautiful people out there looking at them. So I'm having a good Sunday. I hope you are too. Yeah, it's pretty. I'm just trying to get done the stuff I didn't finish yesterday. Which <laughs> the primary thing here is I'm I'm trying to make some space for some more vegetables, uh, and so I'm trying to kill some Bermuda. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I. I sprayed vinegar and orange oil yesterday afternoon and again this morning. Um, I don't know what where to go from here because I don't trust the Bermuda. I mean, it's browned up, but uh, that. Yeah, and it's it produces an underground runner. Are you going to create a raised bed or just a a standard garden bed? 
a raised bed and um yeah, just a small raised bed, and then the other uh, around the edges of it. There's also some of the area where this Bermuda is. I just wanna, I just wanna mulch with uh, pecan shells and um, okay. not have it coming up through the pecan shell. And how how deep is your raised bed? How how high are you to build the sides up on it? Uh, well, I've got one next to it that is uh about about a foot foot and a half raised up okay okay so you know around a foot to a foot and a half if if this were august or july i would tell you that the only hundred percent sure way to eliminate the bermuda is to do what we call solarizing where you wet it down you cover it with plastic and you let it just steam for about six weeks or so not going to happen in april or may while we've still got reasonable weather so your best bet is going to be, and it will work fine since you're going to build it up that much, but either several layers of cardboard or, you know, newspaper 30 layers thick, and you will go a long way towards smothering the Bermuda out by putting that down and then putting your soil on top of it, and of course it's going to rot away with time. Now, a little bit of the Bermuda is going to survive. You will do a little bit of pulling or digging to eliminate it, but... Um, Spraying, you know, with your vinegar orange oil, that's only going to kill the foliage. It's not going to do anything uh, to all those underground runners. So you've made a start. But at this point, if you can find that much old newspaper or, and, you know, newspapers, magazines, both are printed with soy ink on biodegradable paper these days. So you just want to put it thickly enough that it's going to have a chance to suppress the Bermuda before it rots away. But that truly is going to be your best bet. I mean, you could dig up every square inch of it and throw it through a fine screen and sift that dirt and still not get all of it. So at this point, I'm I'm going to put down cardboard, newspaper, magazines, whatever source of paper I can find that's several layers thick, put your soil on top of that, and you're going to probably not eliminate, but you're going to minimize your Bermuda problems. Does that make sense? Should Yeah, should I try to mechanically remove some of it, or is that just a waste of energy? I I mean, you can if you want to do that and then follow up, but um, that underground rhizome that the Bermuda makes, I mean, if you were in sandy soil and you had super loose soil and you could get in there with a spading fork and feel like that you were getting 95% of the rhizomes, that would be a good idea. But sadly, when you till, when you spade, when you try to dig it out, you break that rhizome, and instead of having one Bermuda sprig that's trying to come up, all of a sudden you've broken it up, and you've got six Bermuda sprigs trying to come up. So digging it out uh, in most of our soils in this area makes the problem worse rather than better. Okay. All right. Uh, and so if the, if the bed is like a, a foot deep, a uh, foot and a half deep, that's going to give enough soil for the vegetables that I plant? Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of really any vegetable. That that will be good for tomatoes, peppers, eggplant. Uh, might not be good for the real long carrots, but I don't recommend the real long carrots anyway, and it's not the right time of year for carrots. But uh, that's enough for cucumbers, for squash, uh, for okra. Yeah, that's minimum for okra, but uh, since you said small bed, I wasn't really thinking okra because, you know, <laughs> you got to plant a lot of okra to, you know, get an edible amount. So, but, but that would be that would be enough for okra 
I, I joke at the laugh of these people that think they can plant four okra plants and then make gumbo. Uh, just not going to happen. But uh, much as I love okra, I'll always find. Okay, now what do I do with one okra? You pickle it and eat it. But uh, you know, okra. The, the solution to that, where you have a small vegetable garden, is get one of the attractive varieties, like one of the red ones or something like that, and just plant it in your flower beds along with your flowers. I mean, that red okra is a great background for growing zinnias or something like that, and it kind of makes a flower bed where you can eat some of the produce. So uh, there are some other little creative solutions, but a bigger garden is always the best idea. One more question for you. The Japanese fringe flower, is that deer-resistant? Um only moderately and it's actually Chinese French flower or I don't know all those people who are hung up on being politically correct by these days they'll probably make it, us call it the Asian French flower Asian. but it's, no my Chinese I have very good Chinese friends and one of them told me one day Shu Yu and Shu said why everybody want to call me Asian I'm Chinese I'm proud to be Chinese so I'm not much into that sort of thing but it is Chinese French flower Laura Petalum's its botanical name uh, if you you've got a few deer they're probably going to avoid it if you have a lot of deer now they're going to eat it unfortunately you can spray with one of the deer repellents bob x or liquid fence or things like that but those deer know when the end of the month ends and it's only good for one month you'll have to repeat it or they'll be there the day after the 30th or 31st or the 29th in the case of february they'll be there eating on things what about chase vitex vitex is uh, probably the uh, other maybe oleander or a couple other things. Uh, the lavender chase tree, the vitex is very, very, very deer resistant. I do have a problem uh, a couple of places on my ranch where uh, the bucks love to go rub their antlers on it and they can do some damage to it, but they're not going to eat it. Okay. Well, the, other, the only other thing I got for you is just to tell you that, that my wife had just told me yesterday, she goes, I'm just about sold on this organic thing. It's long. <laughs> Juan is beautiful. Good. And so, so between that and then the the champion strawberry today, that was. Uh, <laughs> well, if uh, that pushes her see. over the edge, it will be a very right. good thing. And you, both of you guys, don't hesitate to call me anytime I can answer questions or be of help. Phil, it's always good to hear right. from you. Appreciate it, bunch. Bye bye. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's talk to Ken. Good morning, Ken. I can for a uh, uh, lemon tree, and okay. I know that uh, all the nurseries are pretty much sold out. And then a friend of mine said, "Hey, Lowe's has a whole bunch," and he said they're about twelve inches high. So I went to check it out today, and here's what it says on the tag: it says "Certified Rooting Cutting Citrus Nursery Stock Improve My okay. Lemon." Is that uh-huh. something that's worth uh, planting? Well, it's the only lemon you're going to find right now, and this is an excellent question. Um, the problem that there are good things to be said about rooting and growing lemons from cuttings, and um, first of all, you don't have a rootstock, so you don't ever have to worry about things sprouting out from the rootstock. But the reason that your growers use a rootstock is that a rootstock produces a taproot, which produces a very strong tree immediately. When you 
grow a citrus tree of any sort, lemon or otherwise, from a cutting, you've got a wimpy weak root system for the first two or three years that tree's in the ground. Eventually, it makes a good strong root system, but it's going to be much more susceptible to blowing over and breaking in wind and things like that. So uh, if theirs is certified, you know, then it's legal for them to sell it. And uh, it certainly will give you a great lemon. And because their cuttings are taken from mature wood, there there is no waiting for it to be mature enough to produce but I would very definitely stake it up or brace it up for the first two to three years until it gets a little bit better root system so it's a weaker tree to start out with but it has the potential long term if you keep it from breaking up in the wind it will make a good tree and it will give you abundant lemons unless it freezes and you'll, you're on your own for solving that problem but that, that's a great question and uh, I'm glad to know that uh, they have some of them on the shelves because uh uh, your growers that are putting on grafted wood, they're, they're telling us no trees until early to mid-summer. So, uh, you know, grab them, fertilize them, let them grow, but stake them up that first couple of years to get the roots in a little, little stronger before you rely on them to be, uh, to stand up to Mother Nature. Well, I was a little suspicious that they might be doing something unscrupulous, but I'm glad to hear that they're not. Well, it's not unscrupulous, but they don't tell you the whole story. I can almost promise you that nowhere on that label are they going to advise you the extra care that plant will take for the first couple of years. Right, right. Okay. Well, that was my question, Bob. Great question. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. Certainly, goodbye. All right, well, let's get our uh, last break of the way out of the way, and we'll be right back and talk to David and maybe a couple of others. I was fishing last Friday on a lake in Mississippi in the humid summer heat On a boat with my best friend Cletus who was sleeping in the back seat Well the bites were slow and we were running low on chips and Gatorade It'd been a long hard day I felt a tug on the line and I didn't pay attention to spinning way too fast Before I knew it I was staring at a ten pound shiny bass when I tried to pull the fish inside, I pulled a muscle in my upper thigh. I was so scared, I threw my rod up in the air. Cletus, take the reel, take it from my hand, cause I can't do this on my own. Uh, Don, I don't know how you do it. Always, always something new, just like you do. Beach Boys for Dr. Kirby, new fishing song for us, and uh, that's that's another keeper. <laughs> I started out the show this morning uh, telling Don I wish we were fishing, but uh, we decided to go to work anyway. But uh, at least gets a good fishing show or fishing song in for the day. All right, well I think we'll probably finish up calls today with David and Bill, so let's get started. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Quick question on Meyer lemon. I've got a, a Meyer lemon that I've had for quite a few years and have gotten lemons off of it, and I was able to protect it during the, the storm. Right Good. now, the, the leaves are kind of yellow. Some of them kind of look like they have some brown spots on it. Welcome to Growing Lemons 101. That's all the foliage on it, on most citrus, not just most lemons. But that's kind of normal this time of year as we move out of winter and into spring. Do you have any new growth coming out on it? A little bit, yes. 
And it's just okay. got new new buds and all that on it. Yeah. I, I would fertilize it. I would uh, probably at this point I'd probably use a liquid fertilizer, has to grow plant, or maybe the Medina's liquid fish. Or uh, there's several good ones out there. But uh, I think it all that needs is uh, some fertilizer. If you want to be sure, you know the overall yellowing is indicative really of just old leaves and time of year. If you get to the point where you have yellow leaves with green veins, that could be an indication you need to put some green sand or some other good iron source on it but uh, at this point I don't think it's anything to be concerned about but good look a little bit of good liquid fertilizer and just watching the uh, you know the be sure the, that new growth does develop a good green color that's all I'm going to be doing I, I think you're just fine I'm glad you protected yours an awful lot of people thought they had and they didn't protect it enough but if yours is looking this good uh, I think that's just old leaves and not anything to concern you well, that's good news. I appreciate it. As always, thank you. All right. Show me some lemonade. <laughs> you have a good day and enjoy. I appreciate the call, David. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Uh, next up is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Hi. How are you today? Hi. It's just a beautiful Sunday out there. I'm doing well and hope you are, too. I am. Thank you very much. Uh, my question, I have... Um, Several hybrid uh, live oak trees uh-huh. I planted in my backyard. They're about they've been in for probably about ten years um, and look absolutely gorgeous. But with this hard uh, winter that we had, um, I've got I've got two trees. One still doesn't have a single uh, bud coming out on it, and I tried scraping a limb and I didn't see any green and then the second one it does have some green leaves on it mm-hmm. um, like near the bottom half of the tree but up near the top of the tree um, it does not have any um, and I was just wondering you know when can you at what point in the year um, do you know if your tree is gone, if you've lost it? Well, in general, my arborist friends are telling me 4th of July is the date that they are saying that trees should be leafed out. Having said that, I uh, was talking to the uh, best arborist I know, a gentleman named David Vaughn, and he told me that following the last big freeze, which was 1983, uh, he was consulting on a commercial project. There was a fair-sized oak tree, and uh, it had not come out, and he told the people, okay, it's dead, you might as well cut it down. They didn't have the budget to do it, and lo and behold, about July, the whole tree came out and filled out very well. So I, it's real hard to say when to give up on it. I would tell you, again, look at Howard Garrett's website, look at uh, what he calls the sick tree treatment, and the first and probably the most important thing is to make absolutely certain that um, that, that root flare is exposed on the tree. When you look down toward the base of the trunk, you should see the roots flaring out, as I'm sure you do on your mature trees, and that's, uh, uh, you know, that from from trees that are not coming out or from trees that are coming out only partially 
I worry that that is more from, uh, you know, just drought, more from just uh, stress, and things are very, very badly stressed with drought and can be stressed from buried too deeply, uh, that those may have a lot to do with why it's not coming out. So at a very minimum, be sure the soil's full back from the base of the tree to where you're seeing a good root flare on it, and uh, I'm going to give them a while longer. One other thing you can do is take your hose and literally every time you think about it, spray up and down the trunk and the limbs where a tree's having difficulty coming out it'll absorb a lot of moisture directly through that soft bark this is more young trees than it is really mature trees with thick bark but uh, they can absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark and i've seen that save trees that uh, might not have come out after otherwise so that's a couple more things to do now even the trees that are coming out well that root flare exposure is important but especially on these two that seem to be challenged uh, I think it's going to be critical. Oh, great. Thanks very much for the uh, information. You have a great weekend. Well, I appreciate it, and I thank you for the call. You get out and enjoy Sunday as well, Bill.